Good morning again, everybody. How are we doing? Awesome. I like it. Conversation back. Great. It's always weird when you ask that and then it's quiet, uh, which is why, I don't know, which is why I don't always ask it. Um, it was great to see you. It's great to be with you this morning. I want to invite you to open up in the copy of scripture that you have to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you a Bible. We believe that God's word is our final authority in life. It, it, it provides God's heart for us. And the word of God um, as taught and led by the spirit of God is something that just brings incredible transformation to our lives, brings incredible hope in the midst of challenge and difficulty, brings clarity in the midst of confusion. And I'm thankful that God gave us his word. Amen. Um, we also, we've been reading through the Bible this year as a church family. Many of you have jumped into this challenge. We entered into the book of Isaiah recently. And Isaiah is just an incredible book. And, um, and we've been reading through. And if you haven't jumped in with us on that challenge yet, I invite you to just jump in right now. Uh, we enter into, I don't even know what it is today. I haven't read yet today. But we're in the early portion of Isaiah. Start reading God's word. One of the most transformative things that God uses in our spiritual lives is the reading of God's word. Not, not to check the box, but so that we might know him. Not to check the box, not, not to perform for God in any way, but to understand his heart. Because as we encounter stories like in Isaiah, and we encounter stories today in the book of Revelation, where Jesus is writing a letter to a church at a place called Philadelphia, God uses his word to bring wisdom and direction to us. And that, that, that's our conviction. That's our belief. And we are thankful this morning for God's word. And so um, we also, as we read, I almost always ask you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. And I'll ask you to do that in just a moment. But before we do that, I, I want to remind you back to maybe a story you've heard before. It, it's a story about an engine. Any train fans in the room this morning? All right, this is a st story. It's Amer okay, a couple train fans. Uh, this is an American folk tale that you might know. You may have read it as a kid. You may have read it to your kid. And it's a story about the little engine who? Yeah, there we go. So I don't need to go through the whole story for you, but the gist of it is this. There's a little engine who's asked to do a task that other trains wouldn't do. I, I reviewed Wikipedia before I came up here to tell you the story. I didn't actually read the book. Uh, I got the Cliff Notes version. Uh, but, but this train uh, took this load, and he's going up this load, and normally he doesn't do this kind of heavy lifting up and over the mountain. And as he's going up this hill, he's saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And it's this story about determination and the story about sticking to it, forbearing with it. It's this story of overcoming a seemingly impossible task. It's a good story. But it's a story that we often apply to our spiritual lives. And we start going, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. And what we're going to learn about the church in Philadelphia today is that they are weak. In fact, the word that's used here, it says, you have limited strength. And I just want to let you know this morning, um, limited strength is such a powerful thing. That sounds like an oxymoron. Paul puts it this way in Corinthians. He says, when I am weak, God's power comes through me in great power and strength. He says elsewhere, when I am weak, then I am strong. 
And I just want to say, as a recovering, self-proclaimed, self-made person, like a person who thinks, yeah, I got that, yep, I can handle that, yep, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, as a person who struggles with that myself, oh, God wants to teach us this morning, in our weakness, God is made much. (laughs) And in our weakness, God can do amazing things. Because in our weakness, we find that he is all we need. Would you stand with me as we read the scripture this morning? Revelation chapter 3, we're towards the end of the book of the Bible, the end of the scripture here. We're looking at the letter to Philadelphia this morning. Write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, verse 7 says, The Holy One, the True One, the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one will open, says, I know your works. Because you have limited strength, you've kept my word and you've not denied my name. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not but are lying. Note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The victor, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we pray that you would teach us your ways that we might rely upon your faithfulness. God, that you would give us an undivided heart to fear your name. We praise you, O Lord, our God, with all of our heart. We glorify your name forever, for great is your love to us. You have delivered us. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide us into what is right and what is true this morning, we pray for the glory of our risen Lord Jesus, the Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. All right, so Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at the church at Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia, some of you know this name because there's a famous American city called Philadelphia, and it's known as the city of brotherly love because it comes from a word that means love and it's that kind of love it's not like the it's not like the covenant kind of love like agape it comes from another word kind of uh the word is phileo and it means brotherly love and there's a story to this city uh as we go through here i've tried to show you where these cities are at because it's helpful to just remember these are real places these are real churches that that the lord is writing to and and there is application for all the churches both in asia and today because at the end of each one of these phrases it says anyone who has an ear should listen to what the spirit says to the churches so this message is for then this message is for now but it's written to this local congregation in Philadelphia okay so Patmos Ephesus Smyrna Pergamum Thyatira Sardis Philadelphia next week we have Laodicea so we're following this ancient postal route through Asia Minor 
in the first century AD, somewhere around 94, 95 AD is where I believe, is when I believe this is written. Here's a close-up of Philadelphia, or Philadelphia. It's right here in what is known as the open door to a new region, all right? This is a very important city because when you get to Philadelphia, um, historians say it, it becomes the open door to everything that comes to the far north and the far east of where it's at. Here's what it looks like in modern day times. It's the modern day city of El Sehir. I actually said that somewhat right, I think. Um, but this is the actual modern day city. And because of where it's at, um, there's actually not a ton of archaeological digging that has been done here. Not only, and I say not because, because of where it's at, because this is seated in a plain and it's seated in very volcanic soil. And in fact, this particular city, Philadelphia, has been subject to numerous earthquakes and all sorts of natural disasters, both in the, especially back in the ancient times. So in the second uh, decade of the first century there around, I think it's around 17 AD, there was a big earthquake that caused a lot of destruction in this area. So the emperor Caesar comes in, he says, let me rebuild your city for you. They say, thank you so much because they got some tax relief. They also got some money to rebuild the city. It was an important city. It's known for its great production. It's known for its agriculture especially the grapes. Here's uh, some photos of the grapes. It's kind of seated in this valley between all these beautiful mountains. It's a, it's a gorgeous city from everything I've seen from pictures, right? I haven't been there, but God willing, maybe one day. Um, so it's this agricultural place. It's 28 miles southeast of Sardis, where we were in our study last week. And it's called the city of brotherly love because the very first king, this is in the 150s BC, the very first king um, was loyal to his brother, all right? He was loyal to his brother. He was tempted, scholars um, say that he was tempted to uh, overthrow his brother. His advisors would come to this, this one brother who's, who's in charge. He said, overthrow your brother who's not here right now. And the brother said, no, I'm not going to do that. He stuck by his blood. He stuck by his kin. He stuck by his people. And it's known as the city of brotherly love. All of you who have brothers out there, love your brothers well, okay? Um, there's, there's a little bit of that. So there's this rich volcanic soil. There's an abundant grape harvest. And because it's a place where grapes are, the chief deity for much of the time that Philadelphia was a, an active community in the ancient world was Dionysus. Dionysus. Now Dionysus, if you remember from our study in Pergamum, he was the god of wine. He was the god of merrymaking. He was the god of the college frat party, okay? It's not just like, oh, hey, here's a gift of God. It's here's a gift of God and let's go live it up. So every celebration that would happen in the Dionysus cult would turn into something that is just ungodly. So you have as a primary worship religion here in this place, you have this frat party that goes on and you're part of this grape harvest and agricultural community where Dionysus was worshiped. It's placed in this critical juncture into the region, an open door, and it has a large Jewish population. So they've had earthquakes, they've had famines. And in fact, right before this is written and addressed to them, 
In 92, the emperor Domitian actually tells Philadelphia, hey, I know that you're a grape-growing place. I know that that exports wine and all this kind of stuff. I want you to uproot half of your grape harvest, and I want you to do something else because it's all about economics, right? They, they wanted wine from a different region. They didn't want local competition and so on and so forth. And so under the emperor's decree, the people essentially get rid of half of their grapes, which actually leads them into a whole season of poverty and struggle economically. So at the point of this time of writing, Philadelphia is kind of a challenging place to live. Food is a little less scarce. Of course, if you're of the richest of the rich, you have what you need. But if you're in the poorest of the poor, if you're somewhere in the middle there, you're just beaten down, beaten down, beaten down. All right? Thank you, Emperor Domitian, for that. Um, And so there's this dire situation uh, by the time of this being written to Philadelphia. There's a little bit about the city. But let's look at what Jesus says about who he is. Because if you remember, um, Jesus begins these letters by saying, write to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Philadelphia. And then he gives something about himself. He reveals something about who he is specific to what this local congregation is going through, specific even to what believers in subsequent centuries would experience in generations and millennia afterwards. And he says this. He says, I'm the holy one. I am the true one, and I'm the one who has the key of David. So we sung a lot about God's holiness holiness this morning. Holiness essentially means to be separate from. God is not mixed in with all the other gods. He's not mixed in with Dionysus. He's not mixed in with Caesar. He's not mixed in with any of the local religions. He is holy, holy, holy. He is other than. He is separate from all of these other false lowercase g gods, right? He is holy, but not only that, he is true. And I have to think for our own time here, truth, oh my word, to try and find something that is true can be really difficult sometimes, right? You open up a newspaper, you open up your email, you open up your text message, you go, is what they're saying actually true? Like, did that really happen? Did it happen the way they said it happened? Now, there's mistakes that happen, but there's a whole sort of coercion in lying and trying to get people to understand a certain nuance without understanding the breadth. In fact, when it says that he is the true one, it makes me just remember that one of the foremost weapons or tools that the adversary has in his arsenal, he doesn't have many, right? He has no power and no authority over the believer, but what he is is a deceiver. He's, he's one who will spread the smallest untruth amidst the sea of what is true. And friends, sometimes it's the the smallest of falsehoods that are the hardest to discern in the midst of this. And so Jesus says, I am the true one. When you come to me, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You can take what Jesus says at his word. Reality for us as followers of Jesus is founded upon the truth of who God is and the truth of what God has done. And I'm thankful for that in the midst of a world where truth is very, very elusive at times. Not only that, it says here that he, 
he um, has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens. And you're like, key of David, open, close, what's going on here? What's actually going on here is a reference back to an earlier part in the scripture. It's actually in Isaiah. And if you're reading through the Bible with us um, this year, we're going to hit this passage in the next couple days. It's Isaiah 22, 22. You don't need to turn there right now. I'll summarize it for you, but go back and look at it later. In Isaiah 22, we're introduced um, to this guy, and his name is Shebna, okay? His name is Shebna, and he's the one who holds the keys of David over the city. The, the scripture describes him as the steward of David's house. He, he's the house manager. In other words, he's the one who goes around and makes sure the doors are closed at night, and then the doors are opened in the middle of the day, and all this kind of stuff. He's got that big, you know, have you ever seen the people who have that big, long thing and a big ring of all keys to everywhere in a building? And you're like, man, what does that open? What does that open? What does that open? Here were the kind of keys that he was using to open, right? He had these keys that could open doors that no one else could open. He had these keys that could close doors that no one else could close. But the interesting thing about Shebna is that he used the authority that was given to him by David, and he used it for his own purposes. And as a result, David or one of David's people said, you no longer have the keys. And they give it to another guy. I think his name is Eliakim. And they say, Eliakim, you're going to be steward over the house. Here, when it says that Jesus has the key of David, it's saying he has authority to do things. Because of who he is, because of what he has done, he has authority to open things that other people can't open. He has the authority to close things that other people can't close. He has authority over the world. And he says this in verse 8. He says, I know your works. I know your works. And your Bible might have this translated slightly differently. In the Greek, it should read like this, um, something like this. I know your works. Look, I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Because you have limited strength, you've kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Jesus is talking about this authority that he has, and he comes from this into accommodation. The one who has power over death in Hades, Revelation 1 says, you have limited strength, but you have kept my word, and you've not denied my name. Now, when he says you have limited strength, he's not saying you have no power. It's, it's not a, a derogatory statement. He's recognizing you're weak. But what you have is that even in your weakness, you've not denied my name and you have kept my word. I love that combination. Just imagine the Lord Jesus coming to you saying, you've not denied my name in that time of challenge. You've not denied my name when asked by someone, are you really Christian? You've kept my word, which means you faced challenges where you're like, oh, God, my inclination is not to do that. My power is not to keep your word because, God, I'm torn. My flesh wants this, but I know you want to work this in and through me. He says to these people, you're limited in your, in your strength and in your power, but you've kept my word. 
you've not denied my name. What an incredible commendation. Philadelphia is one of those churches, it's one of two, where Jesus does not have a word of critique for them. Sometimes he has a very harsh word of critique, but for them, it's an encouragement, it's, an, it's a commendation. And he talks to them because he, he says, I'm the one who has the keys of David. I open things, I close things. But then he says, behold, or look, I've placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Um, placing before someone an open door, what Jesus is saying here is, what I, what I think he's saying here is, I've placed before you certain opportunities here to be my hands and my feet, to keep my word, to not deny my name in a culture in which those two things uh, go out the window pretty quickly in the pagan world. They're not about keeping God's word. They're not about um, honoring his name. One of the ways that this metaphor is used in the New Testament is in Colossians chapter four, where Paul says this to the believers in Colossae. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I, I think what Jesus is getting a hold of here is he's saying, I'm opening a door for you in your context with your limited strength, but with your faithfulness to proclaim who I am to share the message and the mystery of Christ to your community. Now, they live in a very kind of challenging community, which only makes me go, wow, that must have been a really challenging thing. Jesus is sending his disciples here to find people of peace amidst a pagan culture. In fact, in, in, in Revelation 3, Jesus actually describes him, himself in verse 20, which we'll look at next week. He says, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone who opens, or if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in with him. He's giving them, I believe, this missionary opportunity. Jesus is promising this open door for ministry. Ultimately, my friends, sharing the truth of God is much less about our ability, and much more about living faithfully as God's followers and walking into these doors of opportunity that God places before us. I, I mentioned to you before, uh, a few minutes ago, that, that Philadelphia is known as a city that was an open door to a whole new region. Think of these believers looking out at the world just past where they lived going, the gospel needs to go there. God's given us an open door to walk that path. They may not have much as believers, but they have been faithful. And Jesus recognizes their faithfulness and their dependence on him. And it causes me to ask this question of myself and perhaps for you too. What's my walk with the Lord look like today? What does your walk with the Lord look like today? Is, is it a walk that's marked by faithfulness to God's word? Is it a walk that's marked by you have a passion for the name of Jesus in your community, in your home, in your workplace? I know for me, sometimes that's not always the first burning, driving desire because I get distracted by one thing or another. And before you know, it, it's like, ooh. Do I speak here? Do I not speak here? What do I say here? And I love it that even in our weakness and even in the moments in which we, we don't walk through the open doors God has for us, we can come back to God and we can say, God, 
I want to be faithful. God, help me to be faithful. And we recognize through this passage that in our weakness, we actually have strength when we go to God as the source of our weakness. What's your walk with the Lord look like today? Jesus is promising this open door for ministry. Sharing the truth of God is less about our ability, much more about God's divine power, because even when we proclaim Christ, we cannot change the human heart. Only God's Spirit can do that. So we walk forward in faithfulness, but it's God who has to do the heart work in someone's life. We need to, though, understand the gospel, and we need to yield to the Holy Spirit in how we walk. Uh, a story that reminds me of this principle is my grandpa was a chaplain for many years. He, he was a pastor, and then he became a chaplain in the local hospital. And it was a faith-based hospital, and he'd walk around as a chaplain, and he would visit various rooms. And one day he walked into this room, and it's the story as I understand it. He walked into this room, and the, and the lady who was in there for like a week or more was not very open to having a visit from the chaplain. Right? So you have one of two options. You can go like a, like a bowl in a china shop and be like, well, I need to give this to you. Or you could say, Lord, how do I minister to this person where they're at right now? What my grandpa did is he walked in. He had a couple of, you know, can I serve you in any way? I'm the chaplain here at the hospital. No, 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 I don't, I don't want any of that God stuff. So he says, well, I'm just going to hang out here right, right in, in the side of your room. If you need anything in the next couple minutes, just let me know. He leaves a couple minutes later. The next day, he comes back, right? Still doesn't want anything. But he just says, you know, I'm going to hang around here just for a couple minutes. If there's anything you need, please let me know. He does this day after day after day after day after day. Within a week or so, the Lord had used his faithfulness and his openness to ministry. Um, but the Lord had softened this woman's heart. And she goes, actually, chaplain, could we talk about this? Sometimes the posture in which we approach people is the most important thing we can do. We need to be ready to give a spiritual encouragement and a word from the Lord. We need to be ready to speak the gospel at all times. But particularly in cultures in which are hostile to the gospel, knowing that you're cared as a person first and not as a project matters so much. I love that reminder of our dependence on the Lord to work in the life of someone who's hard, whose heart is hardened. Notice with me, please, moving on. In verse 9, he says, Take note, I will make those from the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews and are not, but are lying, note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet, and they will know that I have loved you. Uh, one of the things I mentioned to you a couple minutes ago is that there's a significant Jewish population here. And when you looked at um, Smyrna with Pastor Tom, you, you had this phrase again, this synagogue of Satan. And I think this refers to um, Jewish, Orthodox Jewish people who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, the early church was birthed out of a Judaic context. And as the decades went on, the division between um, church and synagogue grew ever wider. 
By the time of the 150s, they were almost all but separated. In other words, what grew up as a messianic belief in Jesus the Messiah come to redeem and to restore humanity and come to work and keep his promises to the Jewish people, what began as that amongst these early believers that were primarily Jewish became separated. So you have the believers in Jesus made up of Jews and Gentiles, throughout those next several decades, but then you have increasing animosity with the Jewish um, rabbinic traditions and practices of that time. So by 150, like I said, there's actually separation here. And the interesting thing is that um, Judaism at this time was essentially a protected religion by Rome. And so I think what's going on here is you have Orthodox Jewish people who are saying these followers of Jesus, whether Messianic believers or Gentile believers, they are a threat to society, they are a threat to us, and you have these people basically making life very, very challenging for the believers in Jesus. But notice what Jesus says to them. He says, these people who claim to be Jews, and I think that's a reference to Abraham was a Jew, and he was one who followed and trusted God. Uh, it, it, the, the passage of faith in Hebrews notes Abraham as one of those people who had faith in Yahweh. Um, so these are people who are religiously Jewish, but not spiritually uh, in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but they claim to be Jews and are not, but they're lying. Note this, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and they will know that I've loved you. Jesus is essentially saying, know that those people who don't treat you very well, know that I will come to them and they will know that my affection is for you. These people who, who, who worship Yahweh, but whose eyes are blinded and whose hearts are hardened to the gospel, know that they will one day know how I look at you. And he says this in verse 10, because you have kept my command to endure, I will also keep you from the hour of testing that is going to come over the whole world to test those who live in the earth. Um, he gives them this promise that there's an hour of testing that is coming. Um, there's a lot of academic and pastoral ink that is spilled on this one verse right here. Uh, in fact, if you like to study eschatology, this is one of those verses that many go back to to try to understand what is this teaching about the place of the church when it comes to this hour of testing? In, in other words, the question that's asked here is where is the church in relation to the earth when there is this hour of testing that comes upon the whole world. Now, it's interesting to note that, that to come upon the whole world does not mean that Philadelphia as a small local church is going to experience uh, persecution, although they probably did. This is referring to something much bigger, much stronger. And as we look into the latter part of the book of Revelation, we're gonna find that there's bowls and seals and trumpets. There's all these judgments that are the wrath of God poured out on the earth. And the wrath of God is poured out because of sin. The wrath of God is poured out to test those who are on the earth. The wrath of God is poured out for these reasons. And we'll, we'll study actually 
the doctrine of the rapture this fall. Um, we're going to spend a whole week just looking at that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and some other passages. But the question is asked in theological circles, um, how do we understand the place of the church at the time of this wrath that comes upon the whole world to test the whole world? Um, there's two prominent, well, there's, there's several prominent views. I'm going, to, I'm going to, for the sake of time, give you two of them. All right. Um, both of these views come from what is called a premillennial approach to the book of Revelation. In other words, they believe that Jesus comes before the millennial reign in the latter chapters of Revelation. But nuanced further, those of you who are like theology nerds, you're like, yes, we're talking about this, and I hope I haven't lost the rest of you who are like, I don't know what he's talking about. We'll get there. There's what is called the post-tribulational position. Here's the way George Ladd puts this. He, he's a scholar from this camp. He says, the promise of Revelation 3.10, of being kept from the hour of trial, he says, need not be a promise of removal from the very physical presence of tribulation. It is a promise of preservation and deliverance in and through it. Okay, so what he is essentially saying is that at the time in which this, this trial comes upon, or this hour of testing comes on the whole world to test those who are who live on the earth what dr ladd is saying is that the church is present on earth but is protected right that's essentially what he's saying and, and i underline the word from here and the and the word ek which you might be like that's a typo what is that nope that's the greek that means from we're going to look at that word in just a minute he, high, he goes into this, and scholars go into this kept from to try to understand this. That's one position. A second position, and th there's actually a mid-tribulational position, but for the sake of time, we're just going to do the post and the pre. A pre-tribulational position says this. Um, Dr. John Wolver writes, because of their faithfulness, here's how he understands this verse, the Christians in Philadelphia are promised that they will be kept from the hour of trial that will come upon the earth as divine judgment. He says, this deliverance is not only from trial, but from a period of time in which the trial exists, the hour of trial. All right, so, so Dr. Ladd is essentially saying the church is present during this trial, but they're protected. Dr. Wolvert is essentially saying the church is protected, but is protected by not being present. Hence, you get the doctrine of the rapture, which we'd actually have to go to 1 Thessalonians 4 to look at that word, because it's actually a Latin word, which comes from a Greek word in 1 Thessalonians 4. We'll save that for the fall. Simply what I want to do this morning is look at, in the context of Revelation, how do we best understand this? And I'll give you my thoughts, but before I give you my thoughts, I just want to say I have deep respect for both of these scholars, and I have deep respect for many who struggle over, all right, Lord, what is the best? way to understand this. Know that you are loved. Know that everything I say here, like anything I say here, here should push us back to Scripture to study. All right? With that said, here's what I think is going on, and here are a couple of the reasons why. I take a pre-tribulational position. The word kept from, the word kept from here is the word tereso ek. Can you say tereso? Ek. 
Ek is just a fun word to say. I just wanted to make sure you're awake and you're with me. Uh, you don't have to remember those Greek words later. Tereso means to continuously protect or to preserve, okay? So, so I will keep you, verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. I will continuously protect and I will preserve you. Now, what's debated, though, is how do we understand this word ek? You never knew a preposition would matter so much, would you? Like, they were, those of you who are taking English right now, you're like, prepositions, know your prepositions because it matters. Um, this preposition is rightly translated from. This is a preposition of, um, it's a marker that, that denotes separation, all right? So you could, you could accurately translate the word ek as from or out of or away from, all right? It has this idea of separation. It carries this separation from something idea. Now, what's interesting to me is that if Jesus had wanted to write that I will keep or I will continuously protect you through, he could have done that. He could have used a different Greek word to do that. In fact, there's at least two Greek words that he could have used to communicate that more clearly. He could have used um, one word that means I will keep you in the hour of trial that's about to come. Or he, he could have used the word that, that means I will keep you through the hour of trial that is about to come. But what's interesting to me is he uses I will keep you from. I will keep you separate from. I will keep you out of or away from this, not just the trial, but I agree with Dr. Wolver. This hour of trial seems to be what's in view here. Now, hour here can mean an actual literal hour, but it can also refer to a, a, a point of time or a season of time. So what, in the context, I think it best means the latter in this context. So what I think Jesus is saying here is I'm going to keep you from, in other words, I'm going to keep you out of, or I'm going to keep you away from this hour of testing that is going to affect everything on the whole world. In a couple chapters, we're going to look at people who go through the tribulation, even the saints. There's going to be saints who are going to be martyred for the name of Jesus. There's my best, just in context there, for you today. If you want to talk about that further, I'd be happy to do so. For the sake of time, I want to keep going. He's promising them, I believe, that I will protect you. I will keep you. I, I, I will bring you out of that. You will not suffer the wrath that comes from me. In this world, we have trouble. It's true. But our trouble is not coming from the wrath of God poured out on the whole world. The trouble is coming from the power of evil in the whole world. So in this world, we have trouble, but that's an outside trouble. This is God saying, I'm going to keep you from the wrath that I will be pouring down through my bowls and my seals and my judgments that the one who is worthy is able to open and is able to bring to bear. And he says, I, I, I'll, I'll keep you from this. And then he gives him this promise. I'm coming quickly. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. The idea of a crown in the ancient time refers to athleticism. It refers to these races that the winner, the victor, would have this crown. And it would be a marker that you have run the race. 
you, you, have, you have finished. I, when we did um, art camp a, a week and a half ago, time flies, a week and a half ago, um, we looked at this Hebrews 12 passage to run the race that is set before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. I brought in this huge medal that I have, not because I did anything special, but because I, I ran this race and it's the largest half medal marathon um, in the entire United States. I was like, I've got to run that race because literally the metal's like this big. It's, it's just, it cracks me up, really. It, it, it could hurt someone if you're not careful. He's saying, there's a race that you're running. Continue on, continue on, continue on. You're going to receive a crown at the end of it. As you continue to follow church at Philadelphia, as you continue to follow church throughout the ages, as you continue to follow church in Zealand, Know that this wreath that the victors received at the end of this race, this crown of life is given to you. It's not given to you because you were so tenacious. It's given to you because you went to the one who could give you life. And you said, Jesus, I repent of my sin. God, help me to walk in your truth. God, help me to live my life for your glory. God, help me to live my life for your applause and not my own. They're promised this crown of life. Hold on to what you have so no one takes your crown. The victor, he says, I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God and he will never go out again. Here's a photo of a pillar from, uh, it, it's from, um, I think it's from like the 1200s in Philadelphia. Don't quote me on that year. I think it's the 1200s. I should remember it, but I don't. Um, this is a pillar that is in a place. You, you, if you remember, I told you Philadelphia is known for the volcanic soil. It's known for earthquakes. To be something standing in Philadelphia after a season of time is really quite a remarkable thing. In fact, there was a season of time where the earthquakes forced everyone to live outside the city because you couldn't live safely in the city. Jesus is saying to a church that experiences this kind of turmoil, this kind of turbulence, I'll make you a pillar. And when you think about a pillar and you, you go back to some of the ancient ruins in the biblical world, one of the things you often see are the pillars. They're the last things standing because they're sure. They're strong. Their foundation is good. You don't see the top. You see the pillar. Elsewhere in scripture, um, the apostles, there's apostles that, that are described to be pillars of the early church. He, he's saying to them here, the victor, and the victor is the one who has come into faith with Jesus Christ. I will make him a pillar in the sanctuary of my God, and he will never go out again. In other words, he will be forever and always before the presence of the Lord, right? This idea of sanctuary goes back to an ancient time where God came and dwelt in a temple. And then the scripture says that God actually takes his temple and he places it within us. And then we look towards the end of the story of the Bible and we are with the Lord forever. He's saying, I will keep you in the sanctuary of my God. You'll never go out again. I'll write on him, the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from God, in my new 
name. There's a lot of great passages that talk about this name that God is going to give. Um, One of them is in Revelation 22 verses 3 and 4. It says, the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Believers in the church are already the temple of God, but we will have intimate fellowship in the new Jerusalem with the Lord forever. The message Jesus gives to this church who's facing some challenging times, who knows that they're weak, is he said, you'll overcome, you will prevail, you will win in face of the obstacles. I will be with you. Remember, the Philadelphian church is one who is burdened under persecution, who, who has challenging um, economics going on. They have no power, but they have a powerful witness. They have no power, but they have a powerful witness. Remember the little engine that could? <laughs> I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. A lot of us try to live the Christian life by saying, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. God's message to us today is stop thinking that you can. Come to me and I will do an amazing thing through your willingness to be used by me. I will open doors you can't even begin to fathom. I will close doors that you can't even begin that I would close, begin to imagine that I would close. Jesus' invitation to us today is to come to him, not to think that we can, not to live out of our flesh, not trying to measure up, not trying to muscle through, but rather to learn to depend upon the one who says, I have loved you. The one who says, Because you've kept my command to endure, I will keep you from an hour of testing that's going to come on the world. The one who says, I'm coming quickly, keep hold of what you have. My friends, if you're in Christ, you are victorious. If you're in Christ, you are accepted. If you're in Christ, you are adequate. That's who you are. You don't have to, you and I, we we don't have to earn this. Many times, well, all we have to do is to remember this and to walk in the power of God. Remember I talked about how the deceiver likes to drop little lies into our lives? I was talking with someone a while ago, and what came clear to me in our conversation is there was a lie that was right here that they were believing. They were believing they weren't worthwhile. They were believing that that God didn't want to hear from them. They were believing that they didn't matter much to God. And I just said, do you know, that's an absolute lie call it what it is, because God loves you. You're a child of God. You're redeemed by the blood. You are victorious in Christ today, Christians. You may be facing a bad medical diagnosis. You might be facing conflict in your home. You might be hopeless. You might be facing depression or other challenges. Christ is our victory. Here's my challenge to you. Where do you need to be reminded to stand in him? What's the thing God brings up in your life? Jeremy, you're trusting yourself here. Jeremy, you're trusting that here. Jeremy, come back to me here. Where is that for you? 
What doors will God place before you this week? I I love this image of a door because it looks out into a broken and hurting world. And as we grow in our relationship with God, God desires that this relationship not just stay here. God desires that this relationship go out here. But that's always the right direction. We always receive from the Lord and then we give what we have received. What open doors can we be praying for, for one another and for us as a church to make a meaningful, kingdom-minded difference in our world? As your pastor, I don't want to say, let's go, let's go, and lead you into a blind place. What I want to do as a pastor is to say, let's look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and say, Lord, what's the door you have for me this week? And encourage you, step forward by faith. Where do you need to step forward by faith in the Lord today? What meaningful ministry is God placing before you to further his name? Will you step into that path when he reveals it? Most of us are weaker than we think we are. But weakness is actually good. And I want to pray that our weakness would become something we recognize so that God's power might work in us with great strength. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I'm, I'm uh, just encouraged by the Apostle Paul's words, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And weakness isn't always comfortable because sometimes we receive the strength at just the moment we need it, when we want to feel stronger than we actually think we are before. God, would you help us not to walk in our own self-sufficiency today? Would you meet us in our need? Would you show us maybe our need and meet us there that we might walk forward and minister to a world that is broken and that is hurting and that's looking for um, identity and is looking for value and is looking for all these things from a whole bunch of different places when the only one God they can really turn to for that is you. God, remind us of that for our lives today. Remind us of that as we go out into our work week this week. We need you, God. Thank you for the promise that you are always with us. Thank you, God, that you have not left us as orphans. Thank you for the future hope that we have to look forward to, where we will one day be in the new Jerusalem, living and walking in your presence in an even more tangible way than what we have right now. And until that time, Lord, may we be people who hear your word and walk forward with your strength. May we be people who do not deny your name in a culture that's very quick to dismiss you. But thank you, God, even in the moments in which we fail, we can immediately come back to you and be reminded that you work in and through us for your glory. We bless you, Lord. I pray that you'd meet each one of us in our week this week, each one of us in our challenge, according to what we need. God, give us your grace to empower us for holy living. In Christ's name we pray, amen.